I think the preparation for this chapter uh, has probably been the most of any that we've done so far in the book of Daniel. This is such a magnificent book in the Old Testament. Great for young people. I know the youth are working on a kind of a system to uh, uh, study these messages and learn them and be quizzed on them and so on. So they're really going to like that. But even for us uh, over here and adults and seniors and all of that, folks, the, the relevance of this book in so many different ways and so many levels it's, um, there really isn't another book like it in the Old Testament. It's so different. And as I've said to you before, this is a savagely criticized book by the, uh, uh, I'll call them liberal scholars. When I say liberal, I'm not talking about a political position. I'm talking about a theological view. And in this view, the Bible is not the word of God and so on. And yet there are scholars who study the Bible with that perspective. And when they come to the book of Daniel, I mean, this is a savagely criticized book. That and the book of Genesis are, are more or less the same in terms of what the critics think of it. And you're going to see why when we look into this chapter. This is chapter 8, and I call this from verse 12, when truth is thrown to the ground. When truth is thrown to the ground. Now... You probably are thinking, okay, chapter 8 to Daniel, where is this? Like, it's really hard to follow. So I'm going to give you a really quick review of Daniel and then give you a little history lesson before we look into uh, the text itself. So just zipping through Daniel and looking at a kind of a Coles Notes view here. Uh, in chapter 1, and I'll go by the kings that, uh, that we know about, at least at the time, to give you times of where things are. Because what Daniel does is he jumps to the future, he jumps to the past, he jumps to the future, he jumps to the past, and you, you're supposed to know this. Um, if you're going to get anything from this message today, learn this, folks. The writers of the scripture, while they're not trying to deceive us, the critics will tell us that. The critics will say that Daniel, the whole book of Daniel is a forgery and that there's somebody who's passing themselves off as this author, Daniel, but it's not, he wasn't a real person. Half the people in the book weren't real people. It was written much later than it purports to be written and so on. Okay, the critics will say that. Uh, but I will tell you this, the writers of the scripture, they're not trying to deceive you folks. They're not trying to uh, make us do gymnastics to understand what they're saying. They're very sincere. On the other hand, th I don't think any of them had any idea that what they were writing was going to be consumed by people in the 21st century, much less on the other side of the globe in the province of Quebec. And so when you go into the book of Daniel, and many places in the scripture. You've got to remember that this really happened, folks. You give them the benefit of the doubt, but sometimes you've got to do a lot of digging and say, what in the world is this about? What are they talking about? Why is this there? What, who, what, where, when, and why? Those basic questions you ask them, and that's going to open your understanding of the scripture to a much wider bandwidth than just kind of picking it up and being clueless half the time and trying to look for something that you understand. And, you know, then you get to the book of Proverbs and you say, oh, thank God, because I didn't understand anything before this, but the Proverbs I get. So when you look at Daniel, this is, this is an 
art because it's a really complicated book. In chapter one, remember, we're introduced to the whole setting of Babylon and the Hebrew captives are brought there. They're exiled there. The king is our well-known king, Nebuchadnezzar, right? And then in chapter two, we can see that he has this, this dream, this statue with the golden head all the way down to the feet of the iron mixed with clay. And you see that the statue represents these different kingdoms that will rise and fall. That's chapter 2 of Daniel. You're about 603 B.C. When we go through time, we're going backwards because it's before the time of Jesus. So we go from, you know, the 600, 500, 400, 300. It's important for you to know this if you're going to get what's going to be said in chapter 8 here. And then in chapter 3, you keep going. You're in a chronological sequence here and you're in about the 580s and this is the whole story of the fiery furnace again with the same king Nebuchadnezzar and he throws Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego into this furnace because they refuse to worship the 90 foot statue that he has put up that's in chapter 3 good so we're going in sequence very easy to follow so far then in chapter 4 still we're going in sequence we're in the 570s 560s before the time of Jesus and the king has this dream of this tree and the tree gets cut down and the stump is left and so on and this is an illustration of how God is going to humiliate this proud arrogant angry king Nebuchadnezzar which happens and he recounts it in his own words for seven years he is humiliated by God and walks around like an animal and so on and and so we see this in chapter four we're still going chronologically very easy to follow then in chapter five boom you have this jump forward by about uh, you know, 30 years or so, a couple of decades, and it's like, boom, and we're at the end of the Babylonian reign, the night of the end of the Babylonian reign, and you have the handwriting on the wall incident and how the king Belshazzar, who were just told is right there and there's no transition or anything we're supposed to figure this out and how Belshazzar has this wild party taking all of the articles from the temple in Jerusalem which he sacked and burned and he uses them in this kind of uh, drunken debauchery party and the handwriting comes on the wall and that night the Babylonians are defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire in 539 BC. And then we move into chapter 6, and this is uh, Daniel in the lion's den, and here we're in 539. So it's like we're jumping all over the place, and then we're, then we're, we're, we're moving into the shift of power from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians, and we're sitting there now for Daniel, and Daniel is a senior man, and we've got the king um, Darius the Mede, as he's told to us, and we have no idea from the uh, secular history, as it's called, who this man was. This is one of the reasons why the critics say, oh, no, there's no such person as Darius the Mede. We know about Cyrus the Persian, very significant figure, but we don't know about Darius the Mede, nothing about him, except for what Daniel says. And as I've told you before, i just put, the, put this on pause for a second. Folks, this is very normal when you look at Bible study. 
And when you look at especially these characters in the Old Testament, you see this if you if you look at the history of uh, understanding the Bible for let's say the last 200 years, you see this kind of thing. You see the critics say this person didn't exist and this person didn't exist and we have nothing about the person from the rocks except what we see in the scripture. And so people, the skeptics say, no, this person didn't exist, the Bible shouldn't be trusted. And then lo and behold, somebody finds something. Somebody finds something in the rock somewhere. Somebody finds a scroll. Somebody finds a cylinder. Somebody finds something to say, look, it's the same name as what we see in the scripture. And the odds are that that's what's going to happen with this Darius the Mede. As I've told you before, I'll put my money on the one who was crucified and rose again because he believed in the book of Daniel unquestioning, without question. Jesus did. He didn't have any of these arguments and any of these, these views that modern scholars have. So I'll put my money on him. Thank you very much. But anyway, we're at 539, 537 when Daniel and the whole lion's den incident and how they conspire against him and so on. And so this takes place in that time. And then boom, we go to chapter seven, which we covered two weeks ago, and we jump back. And now we're back in like 553 before the shift of the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians. And Daniel has this crazy dream of these four beasts. And this, this is the same imagery or different imagery, but same meaning as what Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream with the statue, except Daniel sees them as different beasts. And this represents a transition of several kingdoms that will come right up until this little horn, which seems to be a pretty good description of some sort of ruler to come even in our future which the New Testament labels as, or who the New Testament labels as the Antichrist. And this is in the first year of Belshazzar, not the last. So you've jumped around, and you've got to know that, because later on, of course, Daniel will, uh, will, will have that moment where he's in front of that handwriting on the wall. But this is many years before the handwriting on the wall. Do you see that? So you're going, you're jumping jumping backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and that's where we land in chapter 7. And then we get to chapter 8, and this is another vision that Daniel's going to have. It's two years after the one with the crazy beasts in Daniel chapter 7. It's the third year of Belshazzar, and he's going to have another vision. Again, this is well before the handwriting on the wall event. We'll put it on pause and give you a little history lesson. Tucked into uh, the book of John in the Bible's New Testament, there's one little verse, and this verse, if you ask the right questions, could take you on a journey. This, just understanding this verse could take you a year. And I told you, the writers of the scripture, they, they're not trying to say, oh, well, you know, in the 21st century, you know, there's going to be this church that meets in a movie theater in Quebec that's going to try and understand what I'm writing, so I better explain it for them. They don't do that, folk. They just wrote what happened. And in John chapter 10, verse 22, it's the only time that this, this uh, festival appears in the whole New Testament, in fact, in the whole Bible. It says, then came the festival of dedication 
at Jerusalem. It was winter. Most people, when they look at that verse, they pass it right by, say, I don't know what that is. Who cares? Maybe the people back then did. I don't. And we pass it by. Tragic. Because if we ask the question, what in the world is a festival of dedication? And by the way, it says it was winter. <laughs> One of the very few times the word winter is used in the entire Bible. But most of us, we jump over this passage and don't think anything of it. It can transform your life. Because the story behind this verse took place hundreds of years before and is right in our chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. Because the festival of dedication, as it's named here in John's gospel, you say, well, let's go dig in the Old Testament and see if we can find this festival of dedication. You won't find it anywhere. It's not one of the, the feasts or festivals that God commanded the people of Israel to celebrate. It's not there at all. You say, what is it? Why has John mentioned this? Is this a mistake? Is this an error? And that'll take you on quite a journey trying to figure out what in the world was this I'm about to tell you. First, a little bit of a history lesson before we get to the chapter and why this little verse is just tucked into John chapter 10. Remember, we have the Babylonians or the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream or the, uh, the, the lion with the wings in Daniel's vision. And there would be a transfer of several kingdoms would, would come and go. So after Babylon would be the Medo-Persian Empire, according to the way that these things were interpreted in the book of Daniel. So you have the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and then you would have the Greeks, then you would have the Romans, and then you would have some sort of future kingdom to come, and ultimately the kingdom of the Messiah. Well, when you get to the Medo-Persians, let me give you, let me zoom into that period a little bit. Just looking at some of what happened, Cyrus and um, uh, Darius, who conquered the Babylonians, this took place in 539. Cyrus was actually the key figure in that. And this guy reigned from about 550 to about 530 years before Christ. But he's a very significant ruler in not only the Bible, but in non-biblical history. This guy, uh, God actually calls him the Messiah in the book of Isaiah because he would bring the, the captives from Babylon back to Jerusalem and he would issue an edict that they should rebuild their temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. And so he's a very significant figure in biblical history. And we have even found on the right side of your screen what's called the Cyrus Cylinder, very famous in archaeology. And on that cylinder, you see it's described how he has a pattern of doing this. He likes to bring uh, exiles back back to their homeland and restore their places of worship. And you see this inscribed in the rocks on that cylinder, what we call the Cyrus Cylinder. His name actually has been in vogue in American politics uh, in the last few years with the coming and going of the former president. There were people who actually likened him to Cyrus in the Old Testament. 
<laughs> so, so the name Cyrus was actually being discussed even in American politics, if you can believe that. But he's a very significant guy, again, in the Medo-Persian Empire. And there's about six or seven kings that come and go in that Medo-Persian Empire. Are you with me so far? I know it's boring, folks, but when we get to chapter 8, you're going to go, oh my goodness, I never heard this before. Nobody's ever told this to me before. I've never heard this in church. I've never read this before. It's going to open your eyes. The last king of the Medo-Persian Empire would be uh, Darius, it called in Nehemiah 12, 22. Most likely it's the same guy, Darius the Persian. And he's also called Darius III by the history books. He reigns from 336 to 331, and he's defeated in 331. Now remember, you had in the visions, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, Roman. This kingdom and this particular, he was the, the king on the throne at the time, was defeated by the the greatest, probably known as the greatest military mind in the history of the world, and that would be Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great reigns for a very short time. He takes the throne at 20. He's, he's dead within 12 years, 12 years, 13 years, dies in 323. He was a brilliant tactician in terms of military might. He took over the known world of that time in just 12 years. He never lost a battle. He had a reputation for being lightning fast, even a better commander than his own father was. And he sought to make the entire known world of that time Greek in language, in culture, in um, in every single aspect that you could think of, that was the vision that he had for the world. And he largely succeeded in doing that. That's why we have the New Testament in the Greek language. The Greek language was the common language of the Roman Empire, even when the Romans uh, defeated the Greeks. The Greek language and culture stayed, folks. That's how pronounced it was because of Alexander the Great. He died at the age of 32, 33 years old under mysterious circumstances. Some people say he died in a kind of a drunken dissipation. Other people said that he got a virus and died. But the man had no children. And so his kingdom was divided into the four generals who served under him, and they fought over that kingdom. And you had four different generals who who took pieces of it in different directions and different geographical parts of his kingdom. You with me so far? Just remember the number four. So you have Cassander, who took the west, Seleucus, who took the east, Lysimachus, who took the north, and Ptolemy, who took the south. Probably some of you have never, ever heard this in your life in a church, ever. So I want you to listen, and it's going to be recorded, so you can look at it later. You can go ahead and fact check everything. This is not found in the Bible, per se. But you're going to see something in a few minutes, how it actually is referred to in the Bible, all right? So these four guys are fighting over uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom when he dies, and you would have four kind of be morphed into two. You would have two kings who would rise up and overtake the other ones, and it would end up being a war between two kings and two kingdoms. The north, as it would then be called, were the Seleucids of Syria, and the south would be the Ptolemies 
in, of Egypt. And guess who was caught in the middle of this war? You had the Seleucids in the north, you had the Ptolemies in the south, and guess who's in the middle? What we would call Israel today. Jerusalem, caught right in the middle of this war between these two kingdoms, north and south. And what would happen eventually is that there would be a king who would rise on the Seleucid side of things. He was called Antiochus IV. There was a succession of Antiochuses there, and he's number four. And he ends up, uh, after losing a battle, he takes his his vengeance out on the people of Jerusalem and on the Jewish people. He's a very, very known figure in the Jewish religion and is sort of the arch villain. Uh, when you look at Jewish history, he called himself Epiphanes, which basically means God in the flesh, God made manifest. And he would go into the city of Jerusalem and institute the worship of the god Zeus. He would outlaw the Hebrew practice of circumcision. He would burn uh, the Hebrew scriptures and anybody who would violate his orders on these things would be punished even to death. We have record of some very sadistic killings that he uh, that he had done. Just uh, he is the arch villain in terms of what was done to the Jewish people in that time. And it would culminate, he would actually set up a gym outside the temple, uh, which, which was a way of disrespecting the temple. And the people who competed in these games that he set up had to compete in the, in the nude. He would have the priests do this, which was very dishonoring and disrespectful to them. And he would ultimately profane the temple itself by going in there um, and this is after the temple is rebuilt, he would go in there and he would take a pig and slaughter the pig and spray the blood all over the temple, which was the ultimate sacrilege and blasphemy to the Jewish people. And what would happen is there would be a segment of uh, of a Jewish army led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus, and he would revolt against this Seleucid reign of his city. This king, uh, Antiochus IV, would leave the city and go out on other business, fight another war, and would actually die later on in that whole incident. But the this Jewish army led by Judas Maccabeus would overtake the Seleucids, and they would take back their own city, they would take back their own temple, and they would... Um, uh, rededicate the temple. And the story goes that the temple would take eight days to rededicate, but they didn't have enough oil to keep the candelabra burning for that time. And yet somehow God miraculously provided enough oil and the candelabra in the temple was lit. And it stayed lit for this period of time. And this particular feast or holiday, while it is not in the Bible, it does show up in the period of the 
We call it the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You got a lot of history here. You got 400 years there. It's not found in the Bible, but this particular feast, we do see it in those writings and the whole backdrop and the whole story as to what happened. And lo and behold, it crops up in John chapter 10. Because people were celebrating it then, including Jesus. We call it Hanukkah today. And you will see it in the month of December. You will see it if you know Jewish people. They will light that, that menorah very systematically. There's a way that you do that. I do that in my own household. But it is to commemorate how the Jewish people retook and rededicated their temple from that evil Seleucid empire led by that guy Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Are you with me so far? You say, Pastor, nice history lesson. Ugh, I'm, I'm falling asleep. What's this got to do with my life? What's this got to do with this idea of when truth is thrown to the ground? What's it have to do with Daniel chapter 8? You haven't even read from Daniel chapter 8 today. You haven't even read barely any scripture today. What does it have to do with it? Here goes. In chapter 8 of Daniel, what you have is one of the most detailed predictions of everything that I just told you. So in Daniel chapter 8, we see he has this vision in the third year of this King Belshazzar at the time. This is long before the handwriting on the wall incident. And he has this vision. This is two years after the one that he had with the beasts. And he's there and he sees himself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam, which was a not known place at the time. If this took place in the mid-6th century B.C., it was not a known place. And he's beside the Ula'i Canal. And he looks up and he sees a couple of animals before him. He sees a ram that's got two horns standing beside the canals and his horns are long. And one of the horns is longer but grows up later. And then he sees this ram charge west and north and south and nobody can stop it no one can stand against it no one can rescue from the power of this this ram it does as it pleases it becomes great and this is what he sees you with me so far okay we continue and then he he looks and he sees a goat that comes and the goat has a horn between its eyes and it comes from the west and it crosses the whole earth without touching the ground it's super fast and it comes toward the ram and it charges in a great rage against the ram and it strikes the ram and it shatters the horns of the ram and the ram is powerless to stand against it and the goat knocks it to the ground and tramples it and no one can escape uh, uh, no one can rescue the ram from the power of the goat and the goat becomes very great but at the height of the power of this this goat and it's all of its power the large horn that it has is broken off and in its place there are four other horns that grow up toward the four winds of heaven and then one of those horns he says grows uh, grows in the power to the south and to the east toward the beautiful land that's the 
where Jerusalem is. And it grows until it reaches the host of heavens and it throws down the starry host to the earth and tramples upon them. And it sets itself up to be great. It sets itself up to be the commander of the very army of God. It takes away the daily sacrifice uh, that's normally offered to God and the sanctuary is thrown down. And because of this rebellion by this, this uh, leader, apparently, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it, and it prospered in everything that it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. And then he hears another voice, and the voice says, How long for this vision to be fulfilled? How long will this go on for? How long until the rebellion that causes desolation, which is a phrase that Jesus uses. We'll get into that in a couple of weeks. How long will all this take? When is this going to end? And the voice says, 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be rededicated or reconsecrated. You say, what is this? So crazy, so kooky. But the neat thing about this chapter is that there is an interpretation that is given, and the interpretation is staggering. Now, if you know the history of the time, you look at this and you say, come on. This is an obvious reference to the Medo-Persians, that's a ram with the two horns. One horn grows larger than the other ones. That's the Persians. The Persians would be the dominant kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire. Yes, 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 we see. And the goat that comes, that's obviously referring to Greece. And the Alexander the Great is the great horn. And then he dies at the height of his power. And then you got the four little horns. That's the four kings. And then you got the Seleucid ruler who's going to go and do all these nasty things in Jerusalem. Yes, 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 we see. We see what the author is talking about and the liberal scholars will say this is written in the second century bc so obvious the guy is trying to to encourage the people of that time even as they're battling the seleucids he's writing about something that he makes it look like a prediction but it's obvious obvious that he's writing about that even even the liberal scholars will say he's writing about that but don't take my word for it because in the back end of the chapter while daniel is trying to figure this out we're told that gabriel Yes, that Gabriel, the one who shows up at the infancy narratives of Jesus, Gabriel is going to explain the meaning of the vision. And lo and behold, Gabriel says, I'm going to tell you who the ram is. It's the Medo-Persians. I'm going to tell you who the goat is. It's the Greeks. And I'm going to tell you that there's a ruler coming from that side who's going to do some terrible, terrible things to the city of Jerusalem. And truth will be thrown to the ground. And he even envisions that this leader who would come, this arch villain of Jerusalem, would somehow also be at the end of time in some shape or form. Again, this reference to what the New Testament will call the Antichrist seems to be symbolized by this arch villain of the Jewish people. And it's all there explained in great detail by Gabriel in Daniel chapter 8. You say, well, that's really interesting, Pastor, but what does this have to do with my life? Folks, there are moments in your life, if you've not experienced one yet, you will. 
and it feels like truth is thrown to the ground. It feels like everything that you have believed in is falling apart. It feels like they're right. There is no God. Why am I wasting time praying? Why am I wasting time believing? It's like truth has been thrown to the ground from chapter 12 of Daniel 8. There's only a few things that you can get from this chapter in a practical sense that are going to impact your life today. But they are powerful, powerful truths. They're really, really simple. Number one, God can be trusted. He can. This is the message that God is constantly trying to bring about in this book of Daniel. You got a vision in chapter 2. You got another vision in chapter 7. You got another vision in chapter 8. And God is saying, This is what is going to happen before it happens. Why does God do that? Because He's authenticating His existence and His power and His sovereignty to His people. He's trying to get His people to trust in Him by saying, I will tell you what happens before it happens. And show me another God who can do the same thing. Isaiah will say the same thing. Isaiah will say, bring your gods and let them declare before it happens. And none of them can. I remember a, a funny story back in the 90s, early 2000s. It was still in vogue. You had these, um, uh, these astrologers that you could call on the telephone. I don't know if any of you remember this. And you could call one and, you know, you dial 1-800-whatever, and you could actually have uh, someone give you your horoscope on the, uh, on the phone. And they will tell you, you know, you'll meet a nice, beautiful woman, you'll meet a handsome man, you'll become rich, you'll become famous, and they'll tell you your future, uh, you know, before it happens. Lo and behold, I remember one, and uh, she, apparently she couldn't predict her own bankruptcy, because she became bankrupt within a few years of starting her business of the telephone horoscope. So it, it, God is saying, he's saying, you show me what, declare what will be before it happens. And I am the only one who can do that. And he does this over and over and over again here in Daniel. And, and chapter 8 is perhaps the most pronounced because Gabriel names the Medo-Persians, and names the Greeks. It's not obscure. It's crystal, crystal clear. Again, so much so that the scholars of today will say it's impossible. It must have been written after the fact because God doesn't exist. And so this was written after the fact because it's too accurate. We, we know the history. We know about where the whole Hanukkah thing comes from. We know about Alexander the Great and all of those things. No one's denying that. But what we will deny is that this book was written before the fact. It's impossible. It's too spot on accurate. And when you get to chapter 11, it's even more focused. And the, the, the century battle between those two kings who would, who would come up to the forefront after the kingdom was divided into four became two you see the political details in chapter 11 who they marry and so on these different kings it's all there and God is saying you can trust me you can trust me you can trust me even if you don't understand what's going on in your life you can trust in me I'm telling you what happens before it happens number two when you read this chapter, you're going to go in one or another direction. It's a yes or no question. 
if this was written before the events that everybody knows it's describing, then that has a tremendous significance. It means that God exists. And it means you've got to do something with the fact that God exists. You're either going to follow him or you're not going to follow him. It's a yes or no question. I've been watching on, in the afternoons during the day reruns of Judge Judy. Any of you like Judge Judy? I love these small claims court television shows. And, and, you know, you battle for $15 on Judge Judy. And I love what Judge Judy says. Tell me about this. It's a yes or no question. And the person says, well, this happened, this happened. No. She says, be quiet. It's a yes or no question. You give me a yes or no answer. Say yes or no. Person will say yes, a person will say no, and Judge Judy will make her decision about the $15 case in small claims court. That's what's going on here. You read this chapter, and it's yes or no, folks. Either you're on the side of God does exist, doesn't he? What am I going to do about this? Or you're on the side of impossible, he doesn't exist, it's written after the fact. It's so crystal clear and blunt in your face. And even Jesus, same thing. He's not calling you to a lukewarm commitment, folks. He's not calling you to be ambivalent about him. You're either with him or you're against him. It's one or the other. It's a yes or no question. Where will you land? Number three, when truth is thrown to the ground in your life, will you throw away your faith as well? Or will you hold on to it? Because if it hasn't come to you yet, at some point in the future, you will live through a season where it feels like everything, your whole foundation of faith is crumbling in pieces. Where is God? Truth has been thrown to the ground. What will you do? It's not how much faith you have, folks. It's how strong is it? You know, the people asked Jesus to increase their faith. And what did Jesus say? If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, it's not how big it is necessarily. It's how strong it is. And how strong is your faith? Will it last even when the wind comes and it seems like it's blowing your house down. Folks, it was like the storm that we had that came through uh, our, our province. And some of you, you, you were hit with the loss of power. Did you see the skies, folks? I mean, terrifying. Looked like something out of the book of Revelation this week. When that wind and that storm comes into your life and blows you to pieces, how strong is your faith? Will it be thrown to the ground or will you keep holding on to the hand of your Savior until the storm subsides? And this is the message of Daniel that he's trying to get, God is trying to get his people to understand. Tough seasons will come in your life. What are you going to do when they do come? And he illustrates it with all of these things and these vivid pictures of the future. So, folks, I know it's a lot of information. And I know for some of you, you say, Pastor, I've never heard of any of this before. I'm probably going to have to look at this 10 times to understand half of it. That's okay. But, folks, take it and digest it and realize, God, he can be trusted, folks. You can hold his hand 
whatever comes in your life. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you today for your word that speaks to us through the corridors of time, even from Daniel, even from 2,600 years ago. We see a striking challenge brought to us. So, Father, I pray for each person in this room. Again, we would examine ourselves on this day that we remember you and this day we have communion. And Lord, that we would truly seek you first and your kingdom and all your righteousness. And we would be on the side of yes, the side of faith, the side of trust, even when the winds come into our lives. We pray to that end together today. And everyone said, Amen and amen. The Lord bless you today. Thank you so much for hanging in in this history lesson. Remember, seniors, if you want to come for breakfast with me, you can uh, sign up outside. You want to volunteer for the Back to School Bash, you have a sheet there as well. God bless you, everyone. Stay dry and have a great Sunday.